on day two, we look at chapter two. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you as we've already prayed for the wonders of your grace in creation, in rescue and hope. Thank you that we have a hope that transcends all barriers, all constraints, transcends even our imagination. We pray that as we consider that this morning, you would give us confidence in it that we might grow and stand for you. In Jesus' name, amen. So everybody got a booklet? We're on page five. High office arouses fiery ambitions, bitter rivalries, and anguished defeats. Those who have climbed to the top of the ladder will often surround themselves with the accoutrements of power to impress or to intimidate or to enforce their position. It might be a grand staircase or a huge desk or a big waiting room or a phalanx of secretaries and aides outside the office. Whatever it is, people find all kinds of ways to make sure people know who's in power. So I got one or two offices and studies here. I wonder if you know whose they were. So here's the first. Does anyone know who that? It was Hitler's. Whose is this? Anyone know whose staircase that is? Is John Granger here? <laughs> it's the Foreign Office. So basically, if you are a, a poor colonial, you're brought into this overwhelming building and made to feel very small and weedy. <laughs> whose is this? More simple, but pretty stark. Anyone know? Stalin. Whose is this? Any Egyptians here? It's Mubarak's. How about this? Know who that is? It's the Pope. That's the corridor of maps leading towards the Sistine Chapel. And it was um, created during the sort of Renaissance when popes had political power. And basically the idea is you walk down this corridor and along each wall are maps of territories controlled by the Pope. So you start at one end, you walk along, and you're made to think, man, this person runs all of this. Who am I to stand in his way? All kinds of different ones. I'm not sort of drawing any conclusions or aspersions by placing different things next to each other, but just, just to show <laughs> that everybody plays the same game. Doesn't matter who you are. Everybody plays the same game. And the psychology is obvious, isn't it? It puts others in their place, whether it is a colonial or a junior or a client. And it makes it very difficult to say truthful things, difficult things to those in power. If you're confronted by someone sitting behind a huge desk and you're on this tiny little stool, it's very difficult to stand up. Well, uh, this is an interesting story. Um, in, in 1956, the 25th of February, um, um, Nikita Khrushchev, who had become premier of the USSR after Stalin had died, 
uh, made one of the most important and ground-changing speeches of his life and, indeed, of the 20th century. And it was actually called the secret speech. Um, but news of it rippled out quite quickly um, through various um, channels. And it was a speech to the, the Soviet uh, leadership. And basically, the speech was called On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences. This so-called secret speech brought to light before the Soviet leadership and before the country the appalling policies and atrocities of his predecessor, Stalin. So at last, somebody was saying the unspeakable and talking about what had happened in the previous decades. And Khrushchev, as a result, went on giving speeches around the country to the various sort of workers' groups and, uh, and so on, um, saying more about this so that the policy of change would be spread throughout the USSR. And at one of these public meetings, uh, Khrushchev was interrupted by a heckler. You were one of Stalin, Stalin's colleagues. Why didn't you stop him? Khrushchev roared back. Who said that? There was an agonizing silence. Nobody in the room moved a muscle. And then Khrushchev quietly responded, now you know why. Don't imagine that it's just communist dictators who play this game. Stalin was definitely off the end of the spectrum of power abusers, but it's a sliding scale, and it happens in all walks of life. And I remember, I don't know about someone telling, whether someone told you this, but when I was a student, you know, going for interviews, the key thing is, if you're nervous, is just to remember that the person interviewing you has to sit on the loo at some point, and just to imagine that make you feel a lot easier. But uh, listen to what Jesus had to say about this sort of thing. From Mark chapter 10, Jesus called them together, his disciples. He said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your slave. Servant is too polite. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Even the Son of Man. Now that was, of course, a rebuke to James and John's request for special status. Uh, you know, they wanted sort of, uh, sort of a decent pecking order in the, in the kingdom. They wanted a nice office, you know, with a phalanx of secretaries and a big waiting room, perhaps a grand staircase and a corridor of maps. Maybe that's what they were after. And Jesus rebukes this attitude. He, he says it is completely out of place in the kingdom. And he himself is an example of that par excellence, isn't he? But don't understand, misunderstand. It's not that Jesus did not have authority. He did have authority. He did have power. You can't get rid of power. You can't avoid having power. You, you know, power is just a fact of life, but how you exercise it is the key. And that's the difference between worldly power and kingdom power. Worldly power serves my own ends. Kingdom power serves others. And the benchmark to measure this is the cross. That is God's benchmark for measuring how power is wielded. Now, we are rightly instructed to honor and respect our leaders, and um, you know, the book of Hebrews, as well as various other uh, books in the New Testament, make it very clear. 
I think in part that means being generous to leaders, especially when they have hard decisions to make. People are very quick to grumble and gripe when people make decisions, leaders make decisions they don't like. We need to be generous and trust people. Christians are not very good at that. One of the things that depresses me most about evangelicalism is our tendency always to be sniffing out the latest and slightest infringement of orthodoxy in order to denounce and decry. So a leader makes a decision to say this or do that or sign this and appear on that program or this platform, and suddenly we think, oh, listen to what he's done now. Listen to what she's said. We're not generous at all. We are to respect our leaders. However, and this is the point today, high office and tough responsibility are never a shield from truth. And Paul has already made the point in chapter 1 over what happens even if angels preach a different gospel. Even if angels preach a different gospel, you must stand up to that. And Galatians 2, well, it's not an angel this time who does it. It's almost, humanly speaking, the next best thing. It's the one that Jesus called Rocky, Peter, Cephas, the rock on which the church will be built. Even he is subject to criticism and rebuke. High office is no shield from the truth. There's no sort of presidential immunity in the kingdom. There's only forgiveness for every believer who comes to the foot of the cross. That's the bottom line. Woe betide any leader who undermines the wonder of that cross, who in a way steals the cross away from people who need it. The gospel, the truth of grace, always comes first. And that's what happens, as we'll see in chapter 2. So, two points. First of all, the gospel that Paul preaches is endorsed by what I've called the big guns, the leaders of the early church. And it's endorsed because it's God's. They recognize it as from God. That's why it's endorsed. And everything seems fine to begin with. And, and by this stage, um, we know that Paul was living in Antioch, which is north of Damascus, um, uh, or in modern Turkey, it's now known as Antakya. Um, I did a little preaching seminar in Antakya about four years ago. It's a small town, and basically you drive in, and it probably looks very similar to how it did in Paul's day, because it's surrounded by sort of rocky mountains, and the only thing that looks different is basically the minarets. Otherwise, you could be there in Paul's day. It's extraordinary. And it's a place to pray for at the moment because that's where thousands of Syrian refugees are camped. And the Turkish government is apparently doing amazing things to look after them. But basically, suddenly, this small town has had an influx of nearly perhaps half a million people. Um, it's an extraordinary situation, terrible situation. But this is where Paul was living and we're about 14 years later or so, although it's unclear whether Paul means 14 years after his conversion or 14 years after his Jerusalem visit, in which case it's 17 years. Now, don't worry too much about it, but the point is, it all fits with Acts chapter 11, where Luke records a famine that happened across the Roman world. Do you want to just turn back with me to Acts 11? 
just a few pages back. Acts 11 and verse 27. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Okay, so that's the background. And off Paul and Barnabas trot south to the big smoke, to Jerusalem, bringing money to support these believers, these brothers and sisters during the famine. And presumably, I don't know, perhaps it had just simply been too dangerous for Paul to go to Jerusalem before now. You know, I mean, having been a, a, a sort of professional hitman, uh, he's turned coat and gone to the other side. Now, actually, he's a wanted man. So it's just as well that 14, 17 years later, it's perhaps a bit safer for him to appear. Perhaps some people have forgotten. And he says in Galatians 2 that um, he goes as a result of a revelation. You see that in, in um, verse 2. I went in response to a revelation, presumably because that was the only way he was going to be confident that he was safe. I'm just guessing. But maybe this was God's way to say, okay, you're okay. You're safe to go down now. And, you know, it could have been a spirit-given tip-off to go that could have been referring to Agabus's prophecy of the famine. We just don't know. It doesn't matter. The important thing is, it's safe for him to go, and he takes Titus with him. Now, that's going to be important. So, what do we see when he gets there? Well, the first thing is, he submits his gospel. In other words, the message he's going around preaching. Remember, he's been a Christian for a decade and a half, and he's been preaching. He knows, as part of his gospel DNA that we saw yesterday, that his job is to take the gospel to the Gentiles. We know that. He wants to make sure that he's in line with the mothership. And notice what happens when he meets these renowned leaders of the church. And, and you can see the respect here. You know, he knows who they are. These are people who spent years living cheek by jowl with the Lord Jesus, walking around. They knew him better than anybody. I mean, that's an extraordinary thought, isn't it? You know, to go camping with God for three years. That's pretty cool. These, you, know, you would want to spend time with these people. And, and you know, they are esteemed. Paul's no troublemaker. He, he's not a sort of lone ranger. He just wants to be sure. So verse 2, that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. In other words, you know, he wanted to make sure he was on the right track. And he did this, as he says there, when he presented to them, note, the gospel that I preach to the Gentiles, okay? He's the preacher, the apostle to the Gentiles. He's running his message past them to make sure they're in tune. They're singing from the same song sheet. So do you see what he's doing? Paul wants the backing of these leaders. Now, that doesn't mean that he would have stopped preaching his message if they hadn't given it, because he's convinced it's from God. But it helps if he can get their backing, and of course... That's what happens. Now, the evidence that they were in agreement with his message is easy to spot. It's Titus being fully accepted at their meals, in their fellowship. Titus was a Greek, a Gentile convert to Christ. So he is a perfect illustration 
He is like Paul's visual aid. Here's one I prepared earlier. This is a real live Gentile Christian. And guess what? He's not circumcised. He has not adopted Jewish culture. Circumcision, if you like, is, is shorthand for the whole thing. You say, no, I, I've not circumcised him. I mean, you know, it's a pretty awkward question. You know, I mean, I don't know how it comes up in conversation, you know, around the dinner, you know, um, <coughs> is he... Um, <coughs> And it's a pretty nerve-wracking question, I guess, for any Gentile who's beginning to think about coming to Christ, not just for Titus. I mean, it's one thing for an eight-day-old boy to be circumcised. It's quite a different man, uh, matter for a grown man in a pre-antiseptic age. And I can see all the blokes in the room looking a bit antsy at the moment, and I'm not going <laughs> to go any further. Now, if that's, what the, if, if that's what accepting Jesus is all about, then, okay, it's got to be done. Now, who knows, in verse 4, who these false believers or, or spies were. But I can just imagine the sort of situation. I mean, Paul and Barnabas and Titus, you know, they're having supper with James and Peter one evening, having a lovely chat. All is fine, and then someone pitches up late and then bungs a whole spanner in the works. He says, oh, by the way, just a, just a quick question, James. Um, I mean, we might as well do it while Paul is with us. So, so you up for getting Titus circumcised on Monday afternoon? You free then? You can just imagine the awkward silence as everyone, you know, reclining around the room uh, sort of looks to Peter, to Peter and James and, you know, what are they going to do? So what is at stake here? It's not just Titus's blushes. Look at the terms that Paul uses in verse 4. This is a matter of freedom or slavery which meant in verse 5, there was no way that Paul was, do you see there, going to give in for a moment. Now, Paul is on fire. In this part of uh, Galatians 2, the grammar, the Greek grammar starts beginning to break down a little bit. You can, you know, he's sort of pacing the room and dictating it. He's getting quite sort of worked up. He says, I'm never going to give in for a moment. And he says, you know, basically, which would you choose? It's a no-brainer. He says, give him the choice between slavery and freedom. What are you going to choose? Oh, well, yeah, put the handcuffs on now. No, of course not. Given that choice, it's, it's you know, you're not going to choose. Oh, yeah, I quite like to be a slave. Thank you. Paul presents it very, very clearly. Now, now you remember from yesterday, the question is, is this good news or is it bad news? Paul will do anything he can to make sure the news for the Gentiles is good. And that means he's not phased by high office. So look at verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, all right, and rightly held in high esteem, it was right to hold Peter and James and John and the other guys in Jerusalem in high esteem. Rightly so. But whatever they were makes no difference to me. You see, God does not show favoritism, verse 6. And guess what? These people added nothing to my message. Paul will show esteem where it is deserved and appropriate, but that will never stop him standing for the gospel. So what's going to happen? Well, the timing of this event is very significant because days, perhaps just a few weeks before this moment, something extraordinary had happened. Not only had Paul been given a revelation, but in the book of Acts, we see 
that Peter had been given a revelation. I wonder if you remember. If you look in on page, where has it gone? Uh, bit of it. Um, so it's um, the inside back page. You see the Galatians historical context. What I've tried to do on this chart is to put everything um, that we know of in these key events in date order. So you can see where Galatians fits. And do you see that just before Paul and Barnabas have visited Jerusalem, and you have that thing about the famine in the Roman world, and you know Paul's visit to Jerusalem in Acts 11, um, Peter has had a vision in Acts chapter 10. Okay? Now, what is this vision about? Well, Peter has his vision, and then what does he do? He goes to dinner with a Gentile soldier, Cornelius. And the reason he did is because of his vision. But it's hard to appreciate the shock of that. Here was Peter, Cephas, the rock on which the church is to be built, breaking the ultimate taboo, and that is mixing socially with Gentiles because they're unclean. I mean, remember what Jesus, people said about Jesus. I mean, you know, when, when he would go around, he would hang around in bars and pubs and, and, and things. And, you know, uh, they, one of the main criticisms of Jesus that came up again and again was that he spends his time with sinners and tax collectors, the great unwashed, the great unclean. And Peter suddenly does exactly the same thing. He goes to Cornelius' house. I mean, it, it, is, it is unbelievable. It's almost as unlikely if not more unlikely than uh, as President Obama inviting King Jong-un of North Korea to come around for a weekend at Camp David. It's just not going to happen. But this is what um, uh, happened in Acts 11. Peter gets accused. He said, you went into the house of the uncircumcised and ate with them. And that's the issue. You see, then in Acts 11, Peter was in the hot seat for going to a Gentile's home for a meal. Peter has a lot of explaining to do. He's got to understand. He's got to explain his views of circumcision and the law and food, what is clean and what is unclean and all that stuff. So what does he do? Well, he tells them about his vision, his dream of meat of various animals from the Old Testament that had been declared unclean, being lowered down, and being told by God to eat. And he recognized that God was in this, and that it was now different. There's an amazing moment in Mark chapter 7 where, where Jesus just declares all foods clean, just like that. I mean, that shows his power, doesn't it, in his authority. He can just like that and say, right, they're all clean. After centuries of tradition, they can at last eat prawns. <laughs> because he says what comes into a man is not what makes him unclean, but what comes out. The real issue is the heart. And this is what... Um, Peter says back in Acts, he says, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So back in Acts, 
Peter has had this vision. He's understood it correctly. He's explained it to others, and he says, it is now okay to eat with Gentiles because the barriers, the, 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 the walls that divided us have now come down because of Christ. Okay, we come back to Galatians. The apostles give their right hand to Paul and Barnabas and Titus. You see, that vision that Peter had had changed everything for him. It changed his whole world. I mean, it's hard to imagine if you've been brought up, I don't know, maybe he was in his 30s by this stage. You know, for 30 years, never doing, you know, touching this type of food and never going anywhere near a Gentile's house, suddenly to be told by God it's okay. In fact, not only is it okay, it's good. It's revolutionary. Well, look at verse 7 of Galatians 2. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been tasked with the preaching of the gospel to the uncircumcised. On the recording it said Gentiles, but in the text it says uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. And so there is no hint of reluctance in verse 8. Do you see this? James, Cephas, and John, all of them gave me the right hand of fellowship when they recognized what? The grace given to me to show to others. While endorsing the outreach to Gentiles with no hint that circumcised, uncircumcised people needed to be circumcised, Titus did not need to. They just had this one command in verse 10. We should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. And of course, what was he doing? He was bringing money to support people in a famine. So they were endorsing exactly what he was doing, bringing famine money. Do you see? But they were just saying, you carry on, just do it more and more. Now stop and consider this for a moment. This was clearly a very stressful meeting for Paul. It was, it was, you know, it was a sort of bit of a make or break thing in terms of how he was going to relate to the Jerusalem church. I don't doubt for a minute, he was a stubborn old goat, I don't doubt for a minute he would have carried on, but he did want to make sure that he was in tune with Jerusalem and they were in tune with him. He saw what was at stake. The entire future of the gospel going to the Gentile world was at stake at this time. This affects us, what happened at this dinner table. But he's fully endorsed, and Titus is fully welcomed. And the parting shot I love is emphasizing concern for the most vulnerable in society. That's more important. Don't forget the poor. I think there are two little key applications from this. The first is to guard the truth of grace. When it comes to God, high office, esteem is useful, is good, but it is meaningless compared to the issue of the gospel. As far as Paul is concerned, there is no excuse for hiding behind a title or a big desk when the gospel is at stake. So he's not afraid of the heritage of the gospel, God, God does not, of the apostles. God does not show favoritism, verse 6. There's no, I think there is a challenge to us who are Anglicans here, for there seems to be a movement in some parts of Anglicanism to see the, the role of bishops shift 
and you're hearing talk more and more of bishops claiming to be the focus of unity for their diocese. Now, quite apart what you think about the whole issue of women bishops, I think this is one of the biggest problems with the women bishops debate, is because they're saying the bishop is the focus of unity of the diocese, and therefore those who don't accept women bishops, uh, you know, those who are endorsing women bishops cannot um, accept the fact that there might be some people in the diocese who have a problem with that. Now, forget all the arguments about whether it's sexist or anything like that. If you say the bishop as a person is the focus of unity for the diocese, you have problems. And I would say you are falling into the danger of the Galatian heresy if you're not careful. No, the focus of the unity of a diocese, as it is of a local church or a province or any church, is not a bishop, it's the gospel. And the job of the bishop is to be a tool, a means by which the diocese sticks to the gospel. As soon as you shift from that, you're going to have problems. I really fear for the Church of England because of this. Not because of having women bishops, but because of the arguments for having women bishops. A bishop is not the focus for unity. The gospel is. High office is never the protection Now, it is not an invitation to be a heresy hunter. And my experience is that there's a terrible irony about heresy hunters. In their concern to guard the truth of grace, they show no grace whatsoever. Secondly, the issue of protecting the most vulnerable. Doctrine is never divorced from living. And it follows from the wonder of the gospel of grace. If it saved even me, it can save anyone. There's no one who's beyond it. There is no one too low or too high. There's no one too sinful or too unlovable to be loved by God. How can we not be concerned for the poor? Being concerned for the poor is not strategic. It's just right. There is a profound connection. It says a lot about your gospel, who you're prepared to sacrifice for, to preach it to. But these days, it doesn't seem like the sort of connection that those concerned most for soundness want to make. Now, I realize it's a big uh, issue and a complicated one and uh, mediated at least on this, but Paul, the great apostle of grace, of undeserved mercy, is a great friend of the poor. I'm going to play a song now. It's not a Christian one. Bizarrely enough, it's taken from the musical Sweeney Todd. That's a bit weird, isn't it? About a sort of ruthless barber. But anyway, he's from London, so it sort of kind of fits. No, but um, it's Stephen Sondheim's musical, but this is a cover by Jamie Cullum uh, of the song Not While I'm Around. Now, to me, I've been listening to this song quite a lot recently because it strikes me as a remarkable, um, how can I put it, um, articulation of the experience of knowing grace love, to know the safety and the protection of being in grace, and that this is what the gospel offers. This is one of the reasons the gospel is good news. So have a listen to this.
understand something of how precious that sort of love is, that confidence, that safety, that security, that grace. Well, you can see why Paul is prepared to take very courageous stands to protect it. He's going to take a stand to protect it against even the biggest guns in the early church. And that's what he has to do in chapter 2. After all that's happened, after Peter's vision, after the meals they've shared together, after the right hand of fellowship being given to Titus, he finds that this gospel, sometime later, is undermined by the very same people, despite it being from God. You notice the names in verse 11? Verse 12, it's the same names. And they come to Antioch, to Antakya, Paul and Barnabas' HQ, Cephas and Peter. Even Cephas and Pe- Cephas Peter has been led astray by some men from James, whoever they were. Now, it's not completely clear who they are. They probably are some sort of combination of those legalist, racialist, gnomist guys that we were thinking about yesterday. Quite what James had to do with them, we'll we'll never know. Whether they were sent directly from him or they were friends of his and they claimed his authority, that happens a lot in the church. You know, I've been sent by John Stott. Or, you know, John Stott was a very good friend of mine. He would have accepted what I'm teaching now. Who knows? But these were the folks in Jerusalem. James, Cephas, and John, they all agreed with Paul and Barnabas in their mission to the Gentiles without any need for circumcision. They agreed. They shared the right hand of fellowship. Something's changed. Now, Paul is clear on Peter's motives. When he stops eating with Gentiles, even though God has sent him that clear vision, now he stops eating with Gentiles. In verse 12, look, it's because he's afraid of the circumcision group. Now, who knows why? Were they threats? Were they going to boycott him? Or were there sort of snide and nasty words? It's one of the grim realities of theological controversy, isn't it? I sometimes wonder whether or not theological arguments bring out the worst in everyone, whether they're right or not. I don't know. They seem worse than political arguments or, or others. I suppose it's because we all, we all think God's on our side. But whatever is going on here, it had an impact. And the hardest thing for Paul must have been, the hardest thing for Paul must have been to see even Barnabas lose his nerve. These are clearly strong characters, whoever they are. Even Barnabas loses his nerve. And Paul has no option. It doesn't matter that these guys have been Christians longer than him, that they are the senior apostles. Uh, You know, he must call out their hypocrisy because that's what it is. The issue is clear. This is not about Jewish culture. As he says in verse 14, it's about justification. It's about justification. 
How do we get into God's good books? That's what justification is all about. How do we get right with God? And the key issue is in the next paragraph. Look at verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, <laughs> know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. We Jews, we know this because we've been saved by faith in Jesus as well. So we know this. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified. Now that seems like going around in circles. It's not. He's simply saying, how do you get right with God? It's by trusting him to give you the gift of being right with God by faith. I wonder when you were at school or if you're still at school, you know, who, what sort of people usually end up as the teacher's pet? I don't know if there are any teacher's pets here. I won't ask you to reveal yourselves. Um, and there are one or two teachers here, and I'm sure you have your pets, uh, although that's totally illegal. Um, <clears throat> but it's usually the kid, isn't it? It's usually the kid who's the most obedient and comes top in exams. Teachers, is that right? They're the ones who are your favorites? Hmm. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's often the ones who try their hardest and are destined for great things, you know, will bring on to the school. They'll come back and, you know, do prize giving one day. And we'll say, look, boys and girls, this person was at our school. You too become, become like, in fact, I guess in this very room, that sort of speech gets given, don't you? There are even some old Monktonians here, aren't there? Isn't that lovely? It must be very nice for you to come back to school. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, the thing about teachers' pets is they're often um, pretty unpopular, poor things. They're not very cool. And perhaps out of insecurity or simply pride, they can come across as smug and arrogant, can't they? Not all. I'm not you know, dissing all teachers' pets, just some. But as far as they're concerned, the only evaluation for a teacher's pet that matters is what the teacher thinks and the school report at the end of term. That's more important to them than what their peers, what their classmates think. Uh, I've come across some rather fun school reports. Uh, there was a time when school reports were an art form in themselves, and we've lost that. But I had a teacher who spent hours on his school reports, and they were works of literary art. But uh, I won't re read mine. Um, <laughs> I, I'm going to read someone else's. <laughs> um, I was only sometimes teacher's pet. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> uh, Alan Corrin, who's the, the late father of Victoria and Giles Corrin, he's a journalist and broadcaster. This is what uh, his, his physics teacher said. Corrin's grasp of elementary dynamics is truly astonishing. Had he lived in an earlier eon, I have little doubt but that the wheel would now be square and the principle of the lever just one of man's impossible dreams. <laughs> Winston Churchill's report at Harrow said this, he is a constant trouble to everybody and is always in some scrape or other. He cannot be trusted to behave himself anywhere. <laughs> this is the actor Richard Briers, who, who very recently died. In his headmaster's report, it said, it would seem that Briers thinks he is running the school and not me. If this attitude persists, one of us will have to leave. <laughs> Um, <laughs> two more. This is Jilly Cooper, the novelist, so-called novelist. I don't know whether you can call her books novels, but anyway. 
No. Shut up. Um, Dilly has set herself an extremely low standard which she has failed to maintain. <laughs> and this is David Owen, the former leader of the Liberal Democrats and uh, a politician, doctor, general, sort of UN person, all kinds of things. This is his final year report from the headmaster. If I had to ch select an expedition to go to the South Pole, he would be the first person I would choose to be on the team. But I would make sure that he is not on the return journey. <laughs> it made him the man he is, I think. I don't have it here. Now, the problem is that people assume that the whole of life is to be like that. That what matters in life is not being the teacher's pet, but being God's pet. We want to get into God's good books. And we think, what better way of doing that than living according to his good book? Makes sense. Seems perfectly logical. Judgment is just like getting your end-of-career report from the heavenly headmaster. And you're in fear and trembling as you're waiting outside the study. Uh, my old headmaster had, had traffic lights outside his study, red, amber, and green. And basically, you had to wait. And then, you know, when it was amber, you were, your knees started knocking. And then green, you sort of had to crawl in. You, anyway, one or two people know in this room know who that person is, but uh, they'll understand why I was in fear and trembling. Anyway, um, <clears throat> The question is, though, how good is good enough? Is it enough to obey the works of the law? Well, Paul says that's futile. We can never do enough to be good enough for God. If you think you can, you underestimate the perfection God demands. The American theologian Gresham Machen put it succinctly like this. He said, a low view of law leads to legalism in religion. A high view makes you a seeker after grace. And grace is what we find. If only we had the humility to accept it. Another way of describing that humility is faith. It is saying, I can't do this myself. I cannot be good enough. Lord, I need you to make me right with you. Because I can't make me right with you. It's simply too far gone. And here's the wonder. This opens the gospel up to everybody. Not just the teacher's pets, but the kids in the back row. You know, flicking pellets and making paper airplanes. They're included too. This is as much for rebels as religious types. But the religious types can't stand it. After all, think of the effort they put into trying to be good. You know, it sticks in the throat that the form bully or the school drama queen or the thick rugby player is acceptable as well. I can't bear it. Okay, rugby players are all right, but sometimes. Then all it takes is faith. Does that mean how you live now is irrelevant? All that sweat and agony is a waste of time? Anyone can have faith. Well, Paul says in 2.17... Absolutely not. It does matter how you live. We're going to find out in another day or two. But for now, it's clear. Anyone can have faith, whether they're Jew or Gentile, and faith is enough. Why? Because of the cross. Christ died and is now alive. If I trust in him, I die to sin and the law. In the words of verse 19, trying to save myself. 
I live because Christ lives in me. Not because I can make myself live, but because he has. So why on earth should it be necessary for Christ to die in the first place? Well, this all flowed out of who Peter should have supper with, believe it or not. Because basically he's saying, if you refuse to eat with Gentiles, you're saying that the law still matters for being right with God. That's what it's saying. And if the law still matters for being right with God, then you can't pick and choose. You say, okay, I'm going to take not eating prawns and spending time in, uh, never spending time in a Gentile home seriously. That means, okay, fine. If you want to do that, you take on the whole thing. And if you do that, in the words of 18... Uh, words of verse 18, I expose myself as a lawbreaker. Because as soon as I take on the whole thing, I immediately show that I've broken some of it, if not most of it, if not all of it. But if I share a meal with Gentiles, I'm saying that Christ has overcome the barriers that lie between us and can save anyone, whether they're Jew or Gentile, because both can have faith in the cross victory whether Jew or Gentile. So by saying, I'm happy to have a meal with you, it's saying, we're on the same level playing field at the foot of the cross. And we can both have faith. We're equal. We're in the same boat. Well, let me close with three very quick reasons then to sum up of why we should not throw grace aside. Because you see, If we throw grace aside, if we say that we're going to try and live by works, we are going to be hitting our heads against a very, very big brick wall. Because trying to live by works of the law, firstly, is impossible. We can't save ourselves. We can never be good enough. It's simply impossible. There can be no assurance ever. You know, the first thing to go is assurance because I can never have done enough. So I just got to try that little bit more. I can remember when we lived in Uganda, we, we sponsored the daughter of someone who worked for us, who is a lovely, lovely girl, um, very bright. And she must have been uh, about 11 or 12 when we first moved there. And they, uh, basically, you know, you have to pay school fees, pretty much whatever. And so we helped her through school fees in the years uh, that we were there. And um, she was in a class size of 97. Um, and basically, you had to give the teacher a little bit extra to notice your child. Um, just, you know, so that they got a bit of uh, an education in this huge room. But um, Hilda was her name, and um, she did really well. And um, I remember she came, she would always come in each, each term and show us her reports, and, and they were un- universally good. I mean, basically, it was amazing. And um, I remember at the end of one year, she came second out of 97 for the whole year, uh, for you know, all subjects. Did really well. And basically, at the bottom of the report, the headmistress had written, could do better. <laughs> and I just told her to ignore that. That's just ridiculous. She did brilliantly. 
But of course, she could have done better. The thing is, I expect that the teacher put that on the person who came first as well. Because even the person who comes first could do better. How much is enough? It's never enough. It's impossible to get right with God by your works. Uh, secondly, it's very dangerous. Because basically, by saying, I'm going to obey the whole law, I'm saying, I'm going to front up to God and say, I've got this sussed. But I stand condemned before I even get into the room. But thirdly, and more important than anything, it's incredibly offensive. Verse 21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Why did he do it? I mean, basically, it's like saying to God after the cross, it's saying, oh, uh, thanks, Lord, um, but I, I, I'll be fine. I don't need your help. I'm okay. Uh, th thanks for the offer, but, but I'll be fine. That takes a nerve, doesn't it? Brennan Manning tells the story of an Irish priest who was on a walking tour of a rural parish in Southern Ireland. He saw an old peasant kneeling by the side of the road praying, and the priest was rather impressed and said to the man, you must be very close to God. And the peasant looked up from his prayers and thought for a moment and then smiled, yes, he's very fond of me. That's the confidence of grace. Yes, he's very fond of me. I love that. Grace is true. It's worth fighting for. It's everything we have. Let's pray. Lord, it's extraordinary to consider that you are fond of us, that we're yours, and that in Christ we were paid for, we were bought, we were brought in, we were shown grace. May we never lose confidence and sight of the wonder of that news. May we constantly, daily, hourly rejoice in the goodness of the gospel that grace is indeed true. And may we stand for that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves. In Jesus' precious name, amen.